Today's reading is taken from Psalm 64. It can be found on page 580 in the Church Bibles. Psalm 64. For the director of music, a psalm of David. Hear me, my, hear me, my God, as I voice my complaint. Protect my life from the threat of the enemy. Hide me from the conspiracy of the wicked, from the plots of evildoers. They sharpen their tongues like swords and aim cruel words like deadly arrows. They shoot from ambush at the innocent. They shoot suddenly without fear. They encourage each other in evil plans. They talk about hiding their snares. They say, who will see it? They plot injustice and say, we have devised a perfect plan. Surely the human mind and heart are cunning. But God will shoot them with his arrows. They will suddenly be struck down. He will turn their own tongues against them and bring them to ruin. All who see them will shake their heads in scorn. All people will fear. They will proclaim the works of God and ponder what he has done. The righteous will rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. All the upright in heart will glory in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So thank you very much, uh, Margaret, for your words of welcome. Uh, thank you very much to Marta for reading our psalm for us. Um, let's just pause and pray as we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here to gather round your word once again. We gather round your psalms as so many have done before us. We ask that you will speak through me to each heart and mind bring us in insight into the glory of your kingdom. Amen. So Psalm 64, um, do keep it open. I don't have any clever pictures. I don't even have any unclever pictures. <laughs> but So do keep your Bible open if you want to follow um, on page <coughs> 580, uh, as we saw a moment ago. But as we look at this psalm, and I started to look at it, one word jumped out at me right from the start, the word complaint. It caught my attention and immediately brought some questions to mind. Does God mind us complaining? In general, I think uh, we do have a lot of experience of complaining. Uh, though living in Britain, we tend to be less direct in our complaints than some other nationalities. When asked at the end of a meal if everything was all right, we tend to reply, yes, it was fine, and leave a tip, even when we know it was very far from fine. We want to avoid trouble. We want to avoid conflict. But once outside, we find the freedom to grumble to one another, to voice our dissatisfaction, and complain to anyone we can. And if we're sent an email to give feedback, we may feel more able to complain. But of course, in feedback, the word complain never appears these days. We're always asked how satisfied we are, ranging from not at all to extremely. And although companies and businesses and service providers ask about satisfaction, many, and I know some here will know all about them, have quality management systems 
based on ISO, the International Standards Organization, and any part of one of these will be a procedure how to handle complaints. So then as I continue to prepare this sermon, I move to wondering uh, about complaining and wondering if churches had quality management systems. I thought this was rather a strange and silly idea, only to find that a number did, particularly in the States, and there was even research reports on quality management and environmental systems in churches and church organizations. We have a new target for our churches here, quality management within our parish. But then I wondered, and perhaps shouldn't have, if God has a complaints procedure. How would we reply if God sent us a satisfaction survey? Or much more worrying, how would we score if God completed a satisfaction survey for each and every one of us? Looking back through the Old Testament, the people of Israel certainly also had a lot of experience of complaining. Here's just one example from Exodus chapter 16. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said, if only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. But before you start to rate this sermon, maybe as not satisfied as a sermon, or start to complain, let's get to our psalm and see why it starts with the psalmist voicing his complaint. Well, as I looked into this, of course, it turns out it doesn't actually mean moaning. But the sense is that the psalmist was simply telling God what was on his mind, as we might in prayer or meditation. Though in our prayers, we may also complain to God, uh, so they're not exclusive. And who is the psalmist? Well, the heading is accepted as being correct. And so the words are those of King David. And they were probably written or sung or spoken whilst David was in the same situation as in Psalm 63 that Gary spoke about last week and where we heard about the threats to David from his son Absalom, who was trying to overthrow him and to take over the kingdom in a rebellion. We learned last week that David is in the wilderness, hiding out from his son and his army. So the words that we heard read are those of David as he pours out his heart to God, bringing before God his fears and his worries but also his certainty that God will triumph and those who have trusted in God will find glory in him. But there is a contrast between last week's psalm, Psalm 63, and this week's. Last week, the message of being secure in God was very much in the foreground with the enemies of David and the enemies of God in the background. This week, we'll see that it is the enemies who stand in the foreground. God is there in the background, of course, ever-present and all-powerful. So we're going to spend a few minutes looking firstly at the heart of David's concerns in the first two verses. Then look at uh, verses 3 to 6, where David details the threats, before moving on to verse 7 to the end, and see how David sees God's response and the promises for those who stay true to God. So in verses 1 and 2, as I've already said, it starts with, Hear my God as I voice my complaint. Here is David saying, God, please listen to me as I bring my fears and my worries and my concerns before you. They seem to be very heartfelt words. We can almost feel the sadness in David's voice. 
He sounds like a man at the end of his tether, wondering what's going to happen. And so he asks God to protect him, to protect his life from the threat of the enemy, and to hide him from the conspiracy of the wicked, from the plots of evildoers. The threat from Absalom and his supporters is very real. They have a great army gathered from all Israel. David's left behind some close followers to disrupt Absalom's plans. But there is still every prospect that David will lose and be put to death. If you want to read the whole story, it's in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through to 18. So we have a very real threat to David from the enemy. But our song is not about the physical threat. It seems at the forefront of David's mind are the words that were being used against him. We seem to have been gnawing at his confidence and at his resolution. And so he speaks to God of the conspiracy of the wicked, the plots of evildoers. This is a war of words as much as an armed battle. If we had time to look back at the story of the rise of Absalom in 2 Samuel 15, we'd see he's very persuasive, very good with words. He uses them to secure the support that he needs. So at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 15, we read, uh, whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who had a complaint or a case would come to me and I would see they receive justice. In many ways, Absalom is very like a modern day leader, talking very persuasively, promising much whilst not having to deliver anything. More easily said than done. It's this sweet talking, the conspiracies, the plots that David lays before God in his prayers and his meditations. Then in verses three to six, David moves on to think of the enemy's ways. He moves to lay out before God how he sees the enemy working in this war of words, using familiar, terms familiar to war, but dealing with words, swords, arrows, ambushes, speaking of cruel words shot at the innocent without fear from a safe hiding place. And for David, these are not random words spoken on written on the spur of the moment. Rather, David sees them as part of a wider evil plan, an unjust plot with traps to catch the innocent devised by the cunning of human hearts and minds. Those plotting it see it as the perfect plan and so encourage each other to yet greater evils. As I wrote this, a children's rhyme came to my mind. I think it will be familiar to many of you. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Often said to encourage, intended to increase resilience, avoid physical re retaliation, but I have my doubts as to its usefulness. Words and insults, particularly cruel words shot at the innocent, are immensely painful. They may not break bones, but they certainly hurt and can bring pain that is deep and very long lasting. And sadly, in our modern world of social media, the scope for shooting cruel words at the innocent has become all too easy. It can be done without fear of being found out, without the perpetrators feeling anything other than that they have devised a perfect plan. 
and threatened by what seems to be a perfect plan, David is at a very low point. Sadly, one of his many uh, uh, low points in his successful but troubled life. He finds himself reflecting on the knowledge that his own son, who he loved and who he thought loved him, was plotting the destruction of his reputation by words and ultimately of his life through rebellion. He sees his enemies growing in strength and in confidence, acting against him, believing they have a perfect plan to destroy him. And David finds himself in the wilderness, both physically, politically, and mentally. If this were a television series, the credits would run, leaving us wondering what would happen next. But luckily for us, we can look on to verses 7 to 9 and look at God's ways. The next episode is available for us on demand. So let's move on in the story and see what happens next. And for us and for David, we see a great change coming over things in verse 7, where David suddenly starts, but God will. David's enemies think they're unseen. They believe they have a perfect plan. They think they're cunning. But David believes, despite all that has happened, that God is still on his side, that God is seeing all that's taking place. Later in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 94, one of the psalms that proclaims the Lord is king, the writer, probably not David, says, How long, Lord, will the wicked, how long will the wicked be jubilant? They pour out arrogant words. All the evil doers are full of boasting. Take notice, you senseless ones among the people. You fools, when will you become wise? Does he who fashioned the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? The Lord knows all human plans. He knows they are futile. Psalm 94 through to verse 11. Then to set the record straight and maybe to encourage himself, David responds to each of the fears and the worries that he's spoken of in verses 3 to 6. And so where they think they're safe in their ambush, God will turn their arrows, their words back against them. God will bring their plans to ruin and all who see them will shake their heads in scorn, we read in verse 8. Their cunning plots, their injustices that they believe are perfect will be brought to nothing. And in verse 9 we, we read, all people will fear. They will proclaim the works of God and ponder what he has done. God has not abandoned David. He promised that he wouldn't, and God is true to his word. Again, in 2 Samuel, uh, God said to David, My love will never be taken away from David, as I took it away from Saul. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God is faithful. God is true to David. God has the true perfect plan from the beginning of time to the end. At times we're blinded by the world and distracted by the physical and mental hurts the world brings, but God is faithful and just, seeing all, knowing all, watching over each and every one, caring for all who put their trust in him. Then in verse 10, we have David's closing words, where he starts to rejoice. They're in great contrast to his opening words. He started by calling on God for protection, and he needed it as well as we all need it. But by the end of the psalm, he's far more positive. The righteous will rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him, and all the upright in heart 
will glory in God. The righteous, those who faith and love God in faith and love God leads them to live God's lives according to God's teaching, will rejoice in the Lord. He'll protect them, he'll watch over them, and they will indeed bring glory to God. We may not see or know the fullness of this promise here on earth, but we can be confident of its complete fulfilment at the end of time as we gather before the throne of God for eternity. A few moments ago, we looked at God's ways, at David's understanding and knowledge of how God would protect him and overcome his enemies. But there's also words here for you and me as they speak of Jesus, the promised Messiah. David and the prophets spoke often of a new ruler who would come from the line and house of David, the promised Messiah. And we find ourselves living in between times. The promise was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, our saviour. But we are still to wait the time when we can all gather before the throne of God. What can we see of Jesus in our psalm, both in the challenges and in the promises? David asked God to be protected from his enemies from those who conspired against him, from their cruel words. But Jesus, the promised Messiah from the house and line of David, came knowing that the authorities and the leaders of the Jews would speak cruel words against him, would mock him and insult him. Jesus knew this was how it had to be if the prophecies were to be fulfilled. And he knew they would conspire against him and draw up evil plans, plans to torture him and put him to death. They would believe they had the perfect plan and that no one would see what was happening. But of course, God saw all. And Jesus, who was and is one with the Father, knew what was in their hearts and minds, knew their plans from beginning to end. And Jesus knew everything must take place, that the writings of the prophets may be fulfilled. As with David, so shadows of doubt crossed Jesus' mind particularly as he reached his low point in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew that the plots against him were coming to a climax. He knew he would suffer and be put to death. He knew he would be abandoned by those he loved and who he knew loved him. He knew that words would be used like arrows against him, and he knew that for the sake of mankind, a great injustice must take place with the sinless one dying in the place of the wrongdoers. But it will be with love that Jesus overcomes evil, not with arrows or words. There would be no retaliation, but Jesus would triumph by his love and God's love for us. Triumph by his actions, actions that would take him all the way to the cross. And unlike Absalom and his followers, whose words promised much, but whose actions came to nothing, Jesus' words and actions both promised and delivered all freeing all who put their trust in him for all eternity. Jesus' death and resurrection, that we'll remember once again as we gather around the Lord's table, brought complete triumph over death. The enemy, that in the, the enemy of the past was defeated. Now all people should, in reverence and awe, both fear God and proclaim the amazing works he did for us through his Son. We should ponder on all he has done for us in dying that we might be free. We should rejoice in him and take refuge in him, in readiness to glory in him when he returns or calls us home 
for all eternity. So let's pause for a moment and then I'll close with a prayer. Father, we thank you that even in the times when the world seems most against us, when words like arrows are shot into our hearts, we know that your son was there before us. Your son is with us now. You know all the plans of earthly people. And we know that your plan for us is to take our place in glory as long as we trust in you, trust in your son, and walk in his path. Amen.